Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Mostly Weather podcast. My name's Claire Whittam and today I'm joined by podcast regular Doug McNeil. Hello. And the subject of today's podcast is fog. And so we've invited along a special guest today, uh, Ian Bootle. Hi, Ian. Hello. (laughs) Could you tell us a little bit about your role at the Met Office? So I mainly work in the model development side at the Met Office, um, so trying to improve our numerical weather forecasts. Um, My main interest for the last couple of years there has been trying to improve fog forecasts. That seems pretty useful. Okay, good (laughs) guest. So I guess we should start at the beginning then and kick off with what is fog? So Doug, I'm going to throw this one at you. Yeah, fog is fog is my my brain, the sleep deprivation that I'm getting right now. I, I do not. I'm, I'm going to pass this over. We've got a resident fog expert in. I'm going to say you don't want to listen to me. You want to listen to the fog expert on this one, Claire. So you're handing over to Ian. Okay, I, Ian, I, I, to I would you. rather. We'll I, that's okay. Right at the start. <laughs> well, having listened to your previous forecast, it's just a cloud. <laughs> I'm happy to say that fog is a type of cloud. Surely a, spe- a special cloud, a special type of cloud. So I think what distinguishes it from, or what, cr- what creates it as a special type of cloud, is the fact that the Earth's surface is important in forming the fog. So it's the fact that it's there, it's on the ground, and its interaction with the ground is what causes fog to develop. Okay, so, and we're talking about um, fog being something specific. So like cloud, it's got moisture in it in the form so of in exactly water. the same way a cloud, it can be, it'll be condensed water vapour in liquid or ice form. It's mainly liquid because it's normally warm at the ground. Um, and yeah, it's, they're condensed around small cloud condensation nuclei. And um, they could be, so what sort of things are we talking about about cloud condensation nuclei? Uh, so particles of I think, dust, um, sea salt, anything um anything that's small anything that's and solid small in the atmosphere yeah that the water can condense onto it's providing that surface for the water to like wrap around and okay and so then we get fog forming in the ground in is a it, layer i guess i was gonna say is it always on the ground is it always in contact with the ground is that part of the definition or is it not well, so i think i don't i I don't really know whether there's a hard and fast definition here, but that in my mind, anyway. So say you you go walking up a mountain, you get to the top of the mountain and you're up in a cloud. That's not fog to me because the cloud would be there if you took the mountain away. Where, Where I see something becomes fog is that it wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the ground is what made it in the first place. Okay, And not always the ground, um, you can form fog over the sea as well? So, yeah, well, any kind of surface could be water, could okay. be land, whatever. Yeah. And crucially, I'd like to know, and if you've got an answer here, that would be useful, the difference between fog and mist. Now, <laughs> what's a mist and what's a fog? I think the main difference is just the visibility, how far you can see through it. Um, typically, fog is anything where you can see up to a kilometre. Mist, you can tend to see over a kilometre, but maybe you can see two, three kilometres. So it's, the visibility is restricted because you've got some condensed water there, but it's not thick, it's not obstructing your daily business effectively, and that's what fog does. OK, okay. I was going to say, because uh, a, a kilometre sounds like quite a long way, actually. I've been in fogs where, I, you know, you, you might literally lose your hand in front of you or, or, or your, your, your headlights on your car. Aren't, aren't going very far so it must be quite variable in its in how far you can see. yeah and i mean for for everyday people like you say you wouldn't really notice if you could only see 500 meters or so it's only really when you get down to 100 meters or less that we perhaps care about fog for driving a car or something um it tends to be for aviation that the kilometer or kind of that kind of distance is more important you're just you're moving aircraft a lot faster so you need to see a lot further 
So basically we're saying mist and fog, fundamentally the same thing, really. We're talking yeah. about uh, moisture in the air, but it's how dense it is. I guess that's an appropriate word, and how far you can see, and that's the difference. So yeah, the mist would be less dense, really. Yeah, okay. So I was going to throw in a couple of other things. So how does that, just to clarify for the listeners, how does that differ from haze, for example? Anyone want to throw that in? So I would say that haze is coming from particles that aren't water. So it's coming from like dust or um, sand or some kind of particular matter that's in the atmosphere, but it's not necessarily got condensed water on it. And so it still restricts your visibility, but yeah. okay, so that's, it's a that's, slightly different physical thing. That sounds like a useful point to talk about how fog forms, actually, because if you, you're talking about cloud condensation nuclei, um, and you're saying that at some point there might be cloud condensation nuclei in the atmosphere and yet a fog is not forming so what's the difference between those two situations why is fog forming in one but not the other you get a haze so kind of i guess the same as how cloud forms it all comes down to the relative humidity of the atmosphere um and so you could have quite a dry atmosphere and you could have a haze forming just because you've got particular matter in the atmosphere as you increase the moisture content of the atmosphere it gets wetter and wetter and that could probably make the haze even worse because the molecules, they kind of take on water and they might swell a bit and it might make the haze a bit different, but it's still hazy effectively. But as you get towards a relative humidity of about 100%, that's the point at which the atmosphere can't hold any more water. And so it's got to go somewhere. And that's then when it starts condensing out on the droplets, on the surface, anywhere else. And that's when the fog will form. And this is when we get into our laws of physics, isn't it? So by changing the temperature potentially of the air, that then changes the amount of moisture the air can hold. And uh, if you so if you reduce the temperature, the air obviously gets colder, it has less energy, it's then less able to maintain the water as a gas and it condenses into water molecules and that's when we start to get the fog form. So there's a real yeah. relationship between the temperature of the air as well as how much moisture there is in the air, I guess, yeah. Interesting. So we talked about haze. What about smog? <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> okay. I w- okay. So smog. I watched a, a great uh, thing on Netflix the other day um, about the Queen. What's it called? I've forgotten what it's called. Not it? just the Queen. It, uh, maybe it is the Queen. I, f- I forget. Anyway, <laughs> it was about the early reign of our current que- uh, Queen Elizabeth II. And um, God bless you, man. Uh, and uh, it was talking about the great smog of 1952. And this sounds like a huge you know, uh, thousands of deaths and, and, and possibly sort of 10,000 deaths over a, a period. This is a really serious thing. And it sounds like there were some particular conditions which allowed that smog to form over, over London. Um, so it'd be really interesting to talk, talk about that as well as what smog is. So it's kind of fits in that same broad category again. I think the, the thing that defines something as being smog is that the the cloud condensation nuclei or the particles, they're really coming from human influence. It's pollution. It's black soot that's burnt from burning coal and it's coming out of chimneys and things like that. Or it's stuff from car exhausts, all of that kind of stuff. And again, it, it kind of fits in that loose category of being fog in that you'll make it much worse if you've got a cold, damp environment. And so you get these pollution particles, they'll take on the water, they'll grow, they'll swell, that makes the visibility worse. They could actually grow into full-blown fog if your humidity gets high enough. And so it's kind of, there's no hard distinction, but um, it's really just pollution creating a much thicker fog than you would get in the absence of that human influence. 
Yeah, and I, I guess, yeah, you've got your particular chemicals are potentially coming out then in the water and maybe reacting and potentially causing acids. And So, yeah, the, so smog sounds like it's a combination of loads of pollution with a foggy environment. That actually, it's it's yeah. weird, right? We don't really get it anymore in this country because we have Clean Air Acts and things. Oh, and so okay. there's, there's not that much pollution. I've been doing some work recently with the Indian Met Department trying to set up a model over Delhi for them. And I just can't get my head around how foggy it is in Delhi in January. Top holiday tip, don't go to Delhi in January. Really? Every day it's foggy. <laughs> but this is mainly pollution-based. Unless you like fog, smog, right? Yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I mean, Delhi's a good place to go if you like fog. If you, well, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so is the pollution causing the fog to happen more than it would have done without the pollution being Yes, there? I think so. Oh, I that's think interesting. It's, it's giving you a lot more particles to condense the water onto so it's making it easier from that point of view. And it also, it probably, it stops like your sunlight penetrating down to the surface. Um, so it perhaps keeps temperatures a bit cooler. So it keeps the humidity a bit higher as well. Oh, interesting. So, I mean, tip, typical pictures that people, particularly in the UK, might have seen are pictures of London covered in fog and, you know, the tip of the shards sticking yeah. out. And I guess my thinking was, OK, well, we still get really foggy days in London. So the smogs of the 1950s and 60s and these pea supers that they used to call them that Doug's talking about were probably just because we already had the fog and we put the pollution on top of it. But it's possible, from what you're saying, Ian, is that actually I, the I pollution was making the other it way worse. Around. The pollution okay. makes the fogs a lot worse and it makes them hang around a lot longer. And so they're much slower to clear away. Oh, that's interesting. OK, so... We said, you said, claimed that fog is a cloud. Okay, <laughs> we'll stick with that. I, I, will, <laughs> I will admit that I checked the World Meteorological Organization's cloud atlas that they released yep. in March this year. Oh, so it's a new one, isn't there's it? There's a yeah. new one as well. There's amazing we should, we, pictures of clouds. That's a podcast episode right there, right? We'll come back to that. It's great because I was like, oh, this is bound to have some information. And I didn't actually get that far, I'll be honest. But it did class fog under the searchable category of uh, uh, meteors that aren't clouds. So I wasn't sure that sort of left me sitting oh, on the okay. fence, but I think we'll go with your definition of it being a cloud. <laughs> see, my, my feeling comes from the fact, so I'm, I'm a modeler, I work on the computer model, so I see the world like it is in the computer model. Yeah. It's like the Matrix, but much less cool. <laughs> um, and so it's exactly the same part of the computer model that does fog as does any other cloud, really. It's the same physical process that makes it. Interesting. That's where my argument comes from, anyway. <laughs> Ah, we'll come back to some of the specifics of modelling in a bit, but you raised the whole, yeah, the physical process. So a bit like clouds, we have a whole bunch of different types of fog. Is that right? Yeah. And are they all formed in exactly the same way or do we see different ways that fog is formed in different locations? So I think most of the different classifications have come about due to the way in which you either get the atmosphere cooling or moistening to create fog. So probably the most common one is radiation fog which has got nothing to do with nuclear power. Um, and this is just where when you get the sun goes down at an evening time, um, you're no longer heating the ground, so it starts to cool, it emits radiation back to space. Um, we all know it gets cold overnight. Mm-hmm. If it gets cold enough to the point at which your relative humidity gets to 100%-ish, then that's when you might storm, start forming a fog. So we're talking about an air mass that's already quite moist. Yeah. During the just, day, it's been nice and warm and the sun's adding the heat. You've just so taken the heat away because you've turned the sun off. Basically, I think just, that's a good analogy. Yeah. Now you're just cooling it down. Um, it will. Sometimes it won't get to that point and so fog won't form. Sometimes it will. And that's when we get this very much a surface layer, as we were talking about at the start. So fog yes. forms right close to the ground, but up high, there's nothing. Yeah, there's nothing there, really. The air's still warm enough. And, I mean, in... so. 
Met Office is based in Exeter and sometimes in the morning I've heard people that come over the hills into Exeter basically descend into a, a valley of fog. And is that the mechanism whereby... Yeah, that so that's um, probably almost fits into its own classification. You might see it called valley fog or something. Okay. And what tends to happen here is that um, we all know naively hot air rises um, the converse of that is that cold air sinks. So where you've got a valley overnight, cold air tends to pool in the bottom of that valley. And so, again, that's the mechanism that makes the air cold enough that you might get fog forming there if it happens to be cold, wet air pooling in the bottom of the valley. And so that's that kind of thing, that you come over a hilltop and go down into a valley and go, oh, it's full of fog. <laughs> OK, and presumably that's a bit harder to shift. People talk about the fog being burnt off as the day goes on, and that's due to the sun coming out and heating the air and then the water being able to evaporate again. But in a valley, do they stay cooler for longer and the air can't move it around as much? Or? Yeah, certainly, because you, you can kind of trap it and so you can't really get any... The wind can't come in and blow it away and you can't really get any mixing to mix it with the non-foggy air to dissipate it. So you, that's the case where you're you're really sat around and hoping that you know there's enough sunlight to heat enough of the atmosphere through the fog to get rid of it. If you don't, you get fog all day and then it will may continue for days on end as well so that happens you do get places where it's just yeah kind of foggy from one day to the next and it never goes oh i was wondering that interesting okay so i grew up uh in basically just outside Broadchurch. if people have been watching Broadchurch recently and there's a hill uh just above Broadchurch. it's not really Broadchurch. church we'll, we'll come back to that uh where if you drive over on particular nights of the year it you can't see anything right you're going to drive off the edge of the hill um if if you're lucky so um if you're unlucky so what's what's happening there we're near the sea we've got a big sort of uh slope um up to the top of the the hill with wind blowing over it and and you know it's always foggy up there so what's what's going on in that in that, i guess that's a really different process than the one you've just described so i guess Probably what's happening there is that you're bringing in the moist air from the sea. Um, and so you've got kind of this very moist air because it's over a water surface and the water can kind of freely evaporate and moisten the air all day long. And then you're blowing it in over a cold land surface. And so you very quickly cool the air down, but you can't lose the moisture out of it. So again, you form a fog. Um, kind of and you're up you're like at that, the top actually. of the hill as well so it's yeah and i guess you're blowing up a hill you're cooling it as well so okay. you've got everything going okay. on there you're gonna form you've it. got all all maze to cool the air and <laughs> okay so that's interesting so i i've read this whole list of different types of fog so i think that the wind blowing up the hill will be upslope fog is that right is, there's a term for that we've talked about radiation fog we've talked about valley fog there's advection fog which advection just means moving something from yeah. one place to another so i guess that's just fog that's blown in um freezing fog is is that the same is that something different altogether so i mean i guess freezing fog is where you get fog forming when the temperature is below zero Um, and so quite often it does still form as liquid because you really have to cool the air down massively to actually form ice crystals within the air you need to be minus 10 minus 15 that sort of temperature when you're in that kind of zero to minus five range, you have sort of super cooled liquid fog forming. But if it touches anything, it can then instantly turn to ice. So this is where you get this like really icy appearance of hoarfrost or something, it would be called. Um, and you, you tend to get like ice forming on like electricity pylons and things as well. So. And you see these stunning pictures, yeah, yeah massive yeah. ice formations. And... It's the very pretty one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although presumably quite 
dangerous and, and damaging in, in serious cases, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And so the final one on my list is coastal fog, which I think is kind of quite interesting because I don't know, it sounds to me that coastal fog encompasses maybe a few of these different fog formation types depending on exactly where you are and the variation between where the warm air is and where the cold air is and where the water is and, and where it's drier. So I, I wanted to talk about this actually a little bit. I wanted to bring it up. Um, so I had a look at uh, a quick look at, at the interactions between. I usually try and get climate change in here somewhere. I'm a sort of climate <laughs> modeler, so I try and try and understand uh, what's happening with the climate and the things we're talking about. So I had a, a quick look at, at the impact of climate change on fog and found that there's quite a lot of evidence that fog is reducing uh, in many places in the world. Not every place in the world, but particularly in the Eastern Pacific. Uh, so, so the coast of California and uh, the, the uh, western coast of the USA. Um, and, and a lot of this is coastal fog. So you might, I guess, um, our listeners might have seen pictures of the coastal fog in San Francisco and that, you know, they have some real, some real pea supers out there. Uh, and it's an interesting uh, process whereby you've got this coastal upwelling. So you've got sort of winds which blow along the coast and that drags away water from the, from the, the coastline on the surface and drags up water from the, from the deep, which is cold. And so therefore you've got a, a, a source of cold, if you like, which is cooling down the air and forming these fogs. But it turns out to be really important for a lot of the uh, coastal ecosystems and some of the tourism as well. So it's transporting moisture in, inland, um, for example, to the redwood forests. So there's some worry that if we're losing some of this fog, that you might start to lose parts of the edges of the of the redwood forest and, and coastal forests in Oregon and California and stuff like that. So, so, so I think that's one good example of, of coastal fog, but I'm sure there's loads more. So, I mean, uh, I was going to say another one I know about that is um, the Atacama Desert in Chile, which is sort of one of the driest places on the planet, but you get quite a lot of um, coastal fog forming there coming in off the sea. And they, they put out nets and they catch it because it's so dry and there's no other source of water. Um, so they catch this fog and create quite a lot of water from ca- taking it literally out of the fog. So they make, they make beer out of it. Well. <laughs> I was going to say, is it drinkable? stuff with it. Wow. <laughs> I think that's really cool. Yeah, no, they do. They, they catch it on these really tiny kind of millimetre-sized net holes don't they and then yeah they can make enough to create i don't know it's loads of bottles of beer every year or something isn't it so they've got their priority straight (laughs) (laughs) but they're using it also to think about greening up parts of the desert i think as well as providing water source to local inhabitants it's not just sort of frivolous beer making that's going on there are (laughs) nothing frivolous about beer making there (laughs) sorry (laughs) yes it's an important marketing strand But going back to your point about San Francisco, I th- I think that's a really fascinating situation because, as you say, you've got this cold uh, California current going down the south coast, so it's going to the south, um, which is. But you've got these warm, moist marine winds coming in from the west, so blowing then over this cold ocean current, and it's it's that that then causes the moisture in the the marine air to to condense and to form fog, um, and so it back. It, backs up if you like against the mountains of the coast but then as the day goes through and the california land mass heats up and as the said earlier you get the warm air mass rising which sort of creates this pressure gradient and then the the cooler foggy air starts coming in um and the reason it comes into san francisco bay is that basically the bay entrance is really just a, a hole in the mountain it's lower. chain it's, <laughs> yeah yeah, okay. yeah and so it just sort of gets pulled in and so san francisco has you know this this reputation now as kind of just being foggy in the afternoon all the time um and some amazing pictures i mean you see these pictures of the 
Golden Gate Bridge, isn't it? But um, did you know that the fog in San Francisco, though, has its own Twitter feed? <laughs> How does it tweet? <laughs> it tweets quite a bit. It's, it's called I at Carl the Fog. I don't... Carl? Yeah, it's got its name. It's called Carl. It's called Carl. <laughs> don't ask me why. I can wear that out. But, um, yeah, for any... Oh, well, I'll uh, follow it fans. immediately. Definitely. Well, maybe we should... Maybe the... Um, the, uh, the, the Mostly weather Twitter handle should follow that as well. I think I can see producer Jonathan nodding here. We'll, we'll definitely, we'll definitely put that on the show notes. That's a good idea. Yeah. So at Carl the Fog, if you're listening, we're at NW underscore podcast. Please do, uh, you know, like us, <laughs> share us with all your friends. Um, so we talked about San Francisco. Really fascinating. Also from yeah, climate change angle by the sounds of things, Doug. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a lot of um, uncertain processes which are going going on. So it's unclear how um, those trends are going to continue into the future because uh, you're talking some very fine scale processes that maybe not so well represented in the models, um, which is kind of what I wanted to get to to Ian on 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 how well fog is represented in the models in the weather models and how that might translate into the climate models later on. I, th- I thought that'd be be really useful. So when it comes to climate change, we talk a lot about models and we talk about weather models. Um, So it'd be really useful to know, um, well, for a start, what modelling is and what we do when we model fog um, and how well fog is represented in those models. So I I guess when we talk about modelling, we've got, um, it's a big computer model. It's got sort of a million lines of code. And the idea of this really is to try and represent in the best way we can understand how the atmosphere works. And so we're trying to model the real physics of how does a cloud form. And so we're tracing in the model what the temperature and the humidity of the atmosphere are, and then at the point at which the atmosphere gets to that point where perhaps relative humidity is 100%, then we'll pass it off to a cloud model and say, right, we'll now start forming some cloud. And so the model will then start creating some cloud water content um, and then that will get moved around within the atmosphere it will fall it will grow into precipitation um, or it might evaporate itself Um, and so really what we're doing with the the fog processes is as i said before it's exactly the same as the cloud and so we're trying to represent that process of um, condensing out the water um, in the most physically realistic way we can afford with the computer power we've got and then whether you get fog or whether you get any other kind of cloud, that's an emergent property of the system. There's no line of code that says, I'm doing fog now. It's just that's what happens, and you either get it or you don't. In terms of how how well we do it, it's, it's not brilliant. It's not the best <laughs> um, thing we are at forecasting. Um, and is that because it's quite complex, or is it because yeah. actually it's quite variable in time and space and maybe we're not able to reach those levels of resolution for example yeah so it's quite it relies on a lot of different things interacting well together so to form fog you kind of you need to have your land surface represented accurately you need to know about you know how does the short wave and long wave radiation um interact so how's the sun shining on the surface does that heat it does that cool it or whatever so the short wave radiation is the solar radiation the long wave stuff is the earth radiating out back to space yeah that also then needs to interact with turbulence um you know you tend to not get fog forming in a turbulent atmosphere it only tends to happen in a um, very calm very stable atmosphere so turbulent again we mean so it's quite mixed well, up there's lots of eddies yeah, in the atmosphere yeah like gust, wind gusts and okay. things like that at the surface faster winds yeah just stuff that forms 
forces it to break up effectively yeah and also then once we start to try and form some fog you need to know you know is that condensed water going to hang around in the air is it all just going to fall out onto the surface very quickly is it going to evaporate again and so you're trying to mix together lots of different processes all of which are they tend to be represented by slightly different areas of the model and you're trying to make them all interact together and there's kind of there's no strong forcing that causes fog like when we get other kinds of extreme weather or storms there's one thing you can normally like hang your hat on and say right that's the main process that's causing this so that's the one thing that drives the model um i'll put you on the spot (laughs) something like a low pressure system coming over the uk and so we'll get a a storm developing from that we'll get strong winds we'll get heavy rain things like that yeah it's, it's some massive thing that's happening at the scale of kind of thousands of kilometers and it's really well represented and really well understood yeah yeah um and so the model can really get hold of that and it does a really good job with that whereas fog you know you're talking about something that's occupying a few kilometers maybe of area at the surface it's maybe 50 100 meters deep it's really small scale it's really localized and it's really subtle whether it's existing or not so, so the Met office is, has, has been investing in sort of uh, larger computers and um, a lot of compu- computing capacity um, is that the main limiting factor is is that going to be helping with our fog forecast or is it going to be the sort of human processes of modeling and making the mo- tweaking the model here and there to make it better um that, that or, or is it a little bit of, bit of both so it's definitely a bit of both i mean we've we've had a um campaign the last year or two um where we've been going out into the field taking measurements trying to understand at a fundamental level you know how does fog form how does it grow and evolve and develop because these are they're kind of quite fundamental questions that people don't really know the answer to and um i think that's really interesting actually i hadn't really realized until i was doing some research how little is understood about fog but it, you know it happens all the time and yet it's poorly understood as you say and yeah. it's impactful right it's an important yeah um, and yeah, so we, you know, we've been going out and we've been instrumenting valleys and um, sites with kind of all the cool stuff we can think of, um, infrared cameras, launching weather balloons. Um, we kind of, it's all very hit and miss as well. Things you come up with, like sets of scales with a bit of astroturf on the top, which you can measure the amount of um, fog depositing onto the surface with. But actually having that knowledge of, you know, how much of it is just falling out to the ground versus how much stays in the air. It's the grand tradition of sort of, you know, Heath Robinson inventions yeah, for no, monitoring. That's great. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's okay. <laughs> you have these ideas of we have these um, amazing uh, like field campaigns. It's cutting-edge science. And now actually what we're doing is scrambling around in a farmyard looking for a bit of wood to prop up some instrument. <laughs> a bit of astroturf. So you've been out in the field, Ian, yeah. doing experiments. Yes, um it's mainly just sitting in a damp field all night long <laughs> okay but we're just waiting for fog to form effectively well it's yeah it's operating instruments so the key ones i guess are weather balloons that we tend to we'd launch them every hour or so so you're getting a good um idea of kind of what the temperature and humidity profile of the atmosphere is um but that's something that yeah it needs people you need to sit there and put the helium in the balloon and <laughs> launch it so and have all the campaigns been successful when you've been out so they've been um, interesting because part of the problem when you're trying to improve modelling of something that involves putting people in the right place to measure it is you then need to forecast when it's going to happen 
so you can get the people in the right place to measure it, which when you're not great at forecasting it in the first place makes it difficult. <laughs> Got a bit of a loop. So we have we have a mixture of good cases and um, misses, shall we say, where fog was forecast but none evolved. So So this night spent out where nothing happens. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, okay. <laughs> But from a scientific perspective, actually, non-results can be yeah. equally as useful as positive results. Uh, yeah, because we've then got a great set of measurements there as to, you know, why did we forecast fog but none happened? So that's that's something that's equally as useful as actual yeah. measurements of the fog itself. You've got the real state of the atmosphere and can feed that back into the model. OK, so you've got your, your good results and you've got your, your misses, but which are also equally informative. How do we then kind of pull that together and, and try to improve the models? Um. So it's really kind of understanding kind of what the what the really detailed level processes are. So when a fog starts to form, how does that then perhaps start to interact with its environment? That's perhaps the, the more complicated thing that we don't know about. So once the fog starts to form, it takes on its own behaviour. It starts cooling from the top of the fog rather than the ground starts cooling. And that kind of it starts generating some turbulence within the fog. And it leads to the fog to grow on its own. And so kind of one of the things we found during this campaign was about half of all fogs, they kind of, they stay relatively stable. They don't evolve a sort of um, persona of their own. They don't become Carl. No. (laughs) Um, And they're the ones that then dissipate really quickly when the sun comes up the following morning. But about 50% of fogs, they kind of take on their own behaviour and they start generating um, sort of turbulence within the fog and they grow and you get a very deep fog layer. And then these are the ones that can hang around all day long um, and they don't dissipate quickly when the sun comes up because they're much deeper, they're much thicker because they kind of they have this feedback process and they grow themselves. That's really fascinating. Yeah. But then it's trying to understand how you can represent in the model which which fogs are going to do which. And, and these processes that are happening, they're they on really super small scales, are they? Yeah. Are these kind of microprocessors or what's the kind of scale length for these, this turbulence? Yeah, because it's, it's kind of all starting with the interaction of perhaps radiation with the individual water molecules. and So, so that's, it, tough. that's tough to model in. That, it yeah. doesn't matter how high your computing power is, you're so going to have to parameterise that. Kind of, no, yeah, we're doing this with kind of empirical parameterizations effectively. Okay, so that's a simplification of some of the physics processes yeah, that are going so on. You know, you're, you're developing it um, based on what you observe in reality and then putting some theory and then maybe some fitting to the observations as well. And yeah, so it's then kind of part of the thing there is, you know, how far can essentially light travel through the fog before it interacts with the fog particle determines, you know, whether it's going to jump into this case of being deep, thick fog or shallow, thin fog. Um, and then the turbulence processes, yeah, they start at the kind of the metre scale or so. Um, so again, it's not anything we're resolving within the model which um, being parameterised. Okay, but you're, um, but if you've got a high resolution model, I guess you might have the topography, the sort of lay of the land a bit better and you might understand some of those, yeah, some of those so processes it, better. This is coming back onto the other thing. The things, things we can start doing now with the new computer resources is um, try and have more high resolution models specifically targeted at fog. And we run one over London now kind of routinely. Um, so and what sort of resolution are we talking about over London now? So it's about 300 metres each kind of pixel um, of the model. So this is compared to uh, we're at one and a half kilometre resolution for our like main UK forecast. Our, 
um, whatever it uses. So it's kind of it's a factor of five. So it's a massive improvement. And I mean, we've got some pictures. Maybe we can put them on the show notes uh, on the web as to the just how much better resolved the the land features are. And yeah, the, and you're, you're getting that extra detail of the hills and the valleys and what the surface type is as well. And so, do, do you see that having an? Presumably, you see it having an impact. But is it having a the impact that you're expecting? Is it an improvement? Yeah, I mean. It, it does definitely, um, and we kind of know that's where you know we're going in the future. We'll want to be running that kind of resolution over the whole of the UK. It also has challenges, though. No one's really tried to do numerical weather prediction at that kind of scale before either. So you're learning constantly as well and finding out new things. But no, it's, def- it's definitely useful, and it's. And, and I guess we've been thinking very much about the surface, and even in my my head right now, I'm thinking of high resolution surface modelling. But presumably, you're actually talking about doing the whole atmosphere yeah. at 300 by 300 meters resolution. So that yeah, that's a huge amount of information need, yeah. that's having make to be the time calculated. time steps smaller as well. I guess yeah. so. You said, so all of those dimensions, you're you're making the computing load goes 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 huge. So, yeah, so it's, it's way more expensive, computers. which is why we can only afford to kind of cover the London area. <laughs> and then you need to run ensembles, right? We, we run. Um, multiple versions of of a, of a single day or a, or a few hours or whatever. Um, so there's another factor where if you want to um, understand the uncertainty better, you need to run the model again and again and again. So you need more of those, and again that just multiplies up the the computational cost. Needing a big supercomputer, more yeah. supercomputers, more, supercomputers. <laughs> more power. <laughs> so is there a particular reason we talked about London earlier, but that you you focused your efforts on London for this model? The main answer there is Heathrow Airport. They are are the number one (laughs) people pushing us to do better on this. Because I guess, yeah, we haven't really talked about the impact or the dangers of fog particularly, but massive impact on aviation business, by the sounds of things. Yeah, I mean, Heathrow, it's the busiest dual runway airport in the world. Um, Basically, they have no spare capacity during the day. They can take off and land planes from maybe 6am to 11pm. I'm not sure exactly, but... Every slot during that day, they basically have books out. When you've got fog, um, they have to increase the separation between planes on takeoff and landing, basically because they rely on being able to see each other. Mm-hmm. The pilot coming into land relies on the fact that he can see the runway, he can see the plane that's landed in front of him has cleared off the runway and it's now safe to land. You can't do that when you've got fog, so you have to give it more time in the system. It's a safety thing um so that the air traffic controller can tell them that the plane in front has finished or there's not been a problem um and it's also then moving planes around on the ground as they're taxiing they need to be able to know where each other are and so the air traffic controller needs to be able to see and tell each individual plane where to go oh of course that's interesting yeah so in really thick fog it's not just that the pilot can't necessarily see the plane in front of him but it's the air traffic controller in the big uh, traffic control tower I can't think what it's called yeah and they, they can't, can't see the see planes below. coming into they land either, either and they can't see them moving around on the ground so this is a bit, how many days a year is this happening roughly have you got an idea it's not a lot um this is the interesting thing that if it were higher impact or if it happened more should i say we'd probably by necessity be better at it so you mentioned san francisco they get fog all the time and they they know it's going to happen at the same time every day and so they just plan their aircraft schedule around it oh because it's this regular process of the problem with heathrow is you you don't know from one day to the next whether it's going to be foggy or not um and so they they have their schedule it's generally full and what they would like to know is 24 hours in advance is it going to be foggy are we going to have to 
you know, increase the distance between the planes, which really means taking off and landing less planes, mm-hmm. which with their full schedule means cancelling planes. Yes, and then you've got passengers stranded or planes and in the wrong countries, locations. Yeah, yeah. it has this huge knock-on effect because you've got planes that are in the sky that can't land. Um, <laughs> oh, of course, interesting. So you've got big stacks circling over London, yeah. <laughs> trying to get them out of the air before they get themselves out of the air. Um I've heard that's a problem in Australia, actually, which kind of made me slightly nervous. Planes going to the uh, West Coast, is it Perth? Perth, yeah. yeah. Um, the, you know, and, you know, pilots take on sort of the, the correct amounts of fuel, but they don't overload their planes with fuel. But there aren't really any other large airports near Perth for almost thousands of kilometres, given the scale of Australia. And I think the Perth airport suffers quite badly with yes, fog, is this yeah. correct? And so because of the time difference, when a flight takes off in... I don't know, let's say uh, somewhere in the Emirates uh, in terms of actual realistic flight distances. They don't know if it's going to be foggy in Perth when they get there. But if it is foggy in Perth when they get there and they have to divert thousands of kilometres away. Essentially got another three or four hours flying. Massive load of extra flying. I mean, here we sort of think, oh, flight gets diverted to maybe Luton or, you know, yeah. Manchester for the worst case. Okay, you're, you're sat it's, on a bus It's not a problem. An hour yeah. and a half. But yeah. in Australia, is, I, I mean, that kind of, that put me off slightly flying to Perth. <laughs> they obviously have it very well covered and, you know, the Bureau of Meteorology There's lots of safety procedures in there for, yeah. <laughs> to but make sure it isn't a problem. It is. It's, it's, much, it's a much bigger problem than we probably realise. Yeah. yeah. yeah and the, the knock-on effects it has, you end up with planes that are stuck in the wrong place because, they, you know, they're somewhere here and there and they're all over Europe. And so it's not just Heathrow that it causes a problem for. It causes a problem for everyone. So... Talking about planes, any other industries or things that are impacted by fog, guys? What can we think of? So it's a huge problem on the roads, right? So it must yeah. be huge amounts of accidents for um, road traffic accidents. So I imagine that's that's one of our important sets of customers. Yeah. I actually, talking about the road, uh, I found a web page about fog lights. I, uh, who knew? I, I really didn't know anything about fog lights. Is this is this by, run by a fan of fog lights? No, no, I don't think so. Do you know what makes a fog light a fog light? Ooh, uh, it's super bright. Ah, uh, no. no. I mean, it's a good question. It's I colour. never thought about it. No, keep going. Uh, I, no, I do not know. Claire, you, you stumped me. Again. So, I mean, Ian was talking about light reflecting of particles earlier. So normal headlights sort of have a, a triangular beam, if you like, a prism, which illuminates the road as well as the 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 air in front of it really but in a foggy situation that's then hitting loads of water droplets that cause loads of reflection to come back and actually means you can't really see so if you just made your light a lot brighter or a lot stronger you're just going to have even more reflected light coming back at you so the purpose of a fog light is they should be mounted really low in the car and point just along the road surface so you don't get any of the the sort of the upwards bit of the triangle and it's really to help the driver see the road and it should minimise the amount of reflection that comes back because it's only pointing at the road rather than... So if you're driving in really foggy conditions, actually turning on your headlights is, is Oh, I've, I've done that yeah, coming over exactly. that over Egerton. Yeah, no good. <laughs> but I had no idea. And then the one at the back, the big red one, is actually just a big red light. Oh, I thought you meant the big you. red light. Okay, okay. No, I'll, no, I've got the front one. I thought that was quite interesting. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, curious anecdote for an aside. But we have some serious accidents with fog don't we, I think, in this country and in other countries. So um, 
there was the Sheppey crossing accident um, a few years ago in Kent. So there was a bridge over the River Sheppey. And I think it was a 150 vehicle pileup, which 60 people were injured. Um, I don't think anyone died, but it basically closed the bridge for, for days. I wow. mean, an absolutely massive accident caused by fog presumably over a river valley, so you've got moist air. It's cooled, I think it was in the morning rush hour, all these formation mechanisms. So better forecasting equals less accidents, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah, exactly. Any other impacts that we can think of? No, I think think we might have some impacts on shipping. We've talked about coastal fog, um, uh, oil refineries, things like that. Which brings me (laughs) nicely to where do we think the foggiest place in the world is? Oh, somewhere. Well, you need this mix, don't you? Okay, um, Scotland. No, can't be. Not San Francisco. Not San Francisco. Okay, somewhere where warm air and cold currents meet. Oh, good. Yes. Um, where does that? Um, where do we know about warm air and cold currents? Uh, bits of the ocean. Uh, Gulf Stream. Yeah. Oh, very good. Wow, Doug, you're on fire. I'm, I'm impressed. thinking about this. Ian, do you, as an expert, have you an idea of where it is? So I suspect it's near off the Canadian coast somewhere. So, <laughs> that's, that's, well, that's spot on. No, well, that's the guy. Yeah, the Gulf Stream up there. Scientific deduction. I like it. Okay. Well, mine's probably more that I've heard it somewhere and then gone. <laughs> exactly, I but. would hope that you'd have heard. You got more chance than me. Um, so, I mean, this is according to the internet. So I haven't done too much dedicated fact checking but apparently it's a place called grand banks which is uh, at the confluence basically where they meet of the gulf stream and the labrador current that oh, comes okay. down the coast of canada as ian says uh, so you've got this really cold uh, air as well as cold water coming down from the north and you've got the warm waters which are then accompanied by warm air masses and moist air coming up from the south and where they cross over is this area of called Grand Banks and apparently they have up to 200, and foggy, 200 fog days a year okay so most of the time it's foggy most of the time it's foggy and they've just discovered I think that there's oil out there or something so because there's fish right is it, is it the Grand Banks uh, I think so it's a big fishing uh, area a big fishing area yeah, as well yeah. is that somewhere else but, okay so, so lots of um, fishing boats steaming around bumping into each other I, I, I guess uh, possibly yeah <laughs> but a real problem because they don't you know we can describe it in a fairly simplistic way but as Ian says the actual formation mechanisms of the fog out there are not very well understood I don't think so um, yeah interesting so Ian as a last point what, what do you think the future of fog forecasting and, and work in the area is um, we'll continue just trying to understand what's going on better and then model it better really is it would be nice to know that you know we could do a 24 hour 36 hour fog forecast that's as accurate as any other kind of extreme weather that'd be my aim anyway <laughs> that sounds like a great ambition that's great well thank you both for joining me today uh thank you to everybody for listening um we will put some um, pictures some nice pictures of fog i think up on the show notes um and maybe some uh, more technical stuff from ian as well um and that can be found online so if you go to www.metoffice.gov.uk forward slash mostly hyphen weather slash episode 16 um you can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, I've mentioned the handle before, but it's at NW underscore podcast. Um, Doug, I know, is also on Twitter. Yeah, I'm at Doug McNeil. Um, I'm at Claire S. Whittam. Ian, do you have no... Shake of the head. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't got it. He's so, too busy 
forecasting the, the fog. That, that's fair enough. Far too busy. Although, you, you know, you might have to check out Carl the Fog, I think. <laughs> um, please do get in touch with us with any questions. So you can tweet us or you can email us at mostlyweather at metoffice.gov.uk. And we always appreciate a review on iTunes as well. So thank you once again to Ian. Thank you for having me. And thank you for coming. And to Doug. Thank you, Claire. And uh, we will see you all for the next Mostly Weather podcast. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.